Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Um, I bring you greetings from Trinity Reformed Baptist Church in La Mirada. Uh, that's where I'm from. And it's good to be with you this morning, um, brothers and sisters in Christ. That's a wonderful thing to gather. Um, would you turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 15? Luke chapter 15. We'll be reading and studying a very well-known parable of our Lord. Uh, the parable uh, was normally called the prodigal son. Um, we'll be reading this and we'll, we'll be working through it. Um, so we'll be reading Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. And I'll be reading from the ESV. Um, so, Thus reads the word of God, starting in verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry. And refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And thus reads the word of God. And before I begin, just by way of introduction, um, I want to give credit to where credit is due. I'm dependent on a a couple sources. uh, The sermons of Benjamin Keach on the prodigal son, and also Richard Barcellus, who many of you know. He's my seminary professor, and his teaching was very helpful in uh, studying this parable. So 
just want to give credit to these, to these men. Uh, by way of introduction, I want to just two quick points. First of all, what are parables? What are parables? Well, parables are either sayings or stories that Jesus told. And they're usually very easy to understand on the surface level, but within they contain truths about the kingdom of God. Um, Benjamin Keach wrote, Parables make use of natural ways by use of illusion or comparison to open spiritual things to our understanding. Um, In short, you could say that parables use metaphors to teach theology. And they're not just moral teachings, something that Buddha could teach or Confucius. Jesus uses these parables to announce the kingdom of God and what he has come to do. And as Keech says, the purpose of parables is to open up to us the great doctrine of the gospel. The second thing by way of introduction is the context of this parable. If you look with me in your, in your Bibles, in chapter 15, uh, in, in verse 1, it's very important, this sets the context, Luke tells us that tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to Jesus. And this caused the Pharisees and the scribes to grumble. They said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so Jesus responds to their grumbling by telling you actually three parables. And so the the first parable is the parable of the lost sheep, then the parable of the lost coin, and then the parable of the prodigal son, or what I've called the lost sons. And each parable shares a common theme. They're all together responding to the grumbling of the tax collectors that Jesus would receive and eat with sinners. So in the parable of the lost sheep, we all know this one, there are 99 sheep that are safe and sound, but one gets lost. And so the shepherd goes out. He leaves the 99 to go find the one lost sheep. And he finds him. He returns home. And what does he do? He calls the whole town to come celebrate with him because there is this one sheep has been found. If you look in verse 7, Jesus says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. He's responding to the Pharisees and they're grumbling. Round two comes, he tells the parable of the lost coin. In this parable, a woman has 10 silver coins, but she loses one. And so she lights a lamp and she goes around the house looking for that one lost coin. And when she finds it, she calls all of her neighbors to come and they rejoice and celebrate. And Jesus says in verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then Jesus tells the third parable. And this drives the nail into the coffin of the Pharisees' self-righteousness. And this, this passage, this, this parable, is, is the same theme. There is something that is lost that is found. And so if I had a thesis or, or a theme, one sentence for this sermon, it would be that Jesus came to seek and save not the self-righteous, but the lost. Jesus came to seek and save not the self-righteous, but the lost. And this parable has lots and lots of riches within it. Um, Benjamin Keach preached nine sermons on just the first half of this parable. And so I'm going to really try to go for the main theme and the main thrust of this parable, and hopefully we'll, we'll see some wonderful things. In my outline, I have three points. So the first point will be this, the descent of the prodigal. The descent of the prodigal. And this is found in verses 11 through 16. And I'll work, we'll work through it, and then we'll have some, some applications. 
the description of the prodigal's uh, descent um, or his, um, his actions, it's really a, a spiritual descent. We see that without delay, he, he pursues all the pleasures of the world. If you look in verse 12, he demands his share of the father's inheritance. And if you, according to Deuteronomy 21, the oldest son would receive two-thirds and the younger son would receive one-third. So that's probably what he's asking for. Um, and he, he tells his father what to do. Give me my inheritance. He might as well have said, I wish you were dead so I can have my share of your possessions. What a grief this son was to his father. But this is just the beginning. If we see and look at verse 13, the prodigal gets all he has, all his possessions, and he journeys to a far country. You see, he gets far away from his father and the morality of his father's house, and he lets loose. And there in the far country, it says that the prodigal squandered his property in reckless living. The word squandered there, it could also be translated as scattered. Uh, it's used in other places in the New Testament to talk about a flock of sheep scattering. I don't know if you've ever seen the planet Earth or something when a, a wolf comes to, towards a herd of sheep and they scatter. And that's a good image to how the prodigal spends his possessions. He squanders them in reckless living. He scatters all he has to the wind. And what did he spend it on? Jesus calls it reckless living. The word could also be translated somewhat as debauchery. Um, in 1 Peter 4, uh, Peter tells his, his, his readers or his listeners uh, to don't be surprised when the world is shocked that you don't join them in their flood of debauchery. Um, this is going full on into the world, neck deep in sin. And so we see that the prodigal soon found he had no hope there in the far country. In verse 14, he had spent all he had seeking pleasure and he found he had nothing. You see, he had brought this affliction upon himself, but then another affliction happens. A famine arises in the land, a severe famine. And so he has a affliction that he has caused for himself and then a, a affliction that has been permitted. And here he is in, in dire straits. In verse 15, uh, it tells us he was so destitute that he had to hire himself out to a citizen uh, who sent him into his feed, field to feed pigs. Now, Jesus is telling this parable to Jews. So Jews, would, they would understand how destitute the, par, the prodigal would have to be uh, to go work with unclean animals, pigs, swine. So the prodigal had hurried to his far country to indulge all of his senses in sin, and now he lost everything. He, was, he had to work for a strange master in a strange land. In verse 16, it gets even worse. He's so hungry, he, he feels like he wants to eat the, the, the food that the pigs eat. Uh, the words literally carob pods. They, they fall from a tree that pigs would eat them. They're inedible for humans. It tells you how destitute he was. And the last phrase in verse 16, no one gave him anything. That's an additional thing that he's saying. It's not that, um, let me just read the verse again. Uh, he says, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. It was not that they didn't give him the, the food of the pigs. He wanted to eat that, but he couldn't, and also no one gave him anything. Um, this was a cruel land in the far country. No one would give him anything. And so the prodigal had attempted to live his life to the fullest, spending all he had on sin. But as it says in Isaiah 57, 21, there is no peace for the wicked. 
And so Jesus describes the sinful state of the prodigal there in the far country. And he does acknowledge that his sin was truly great. Now, Jesus is telling this parable. Can you imagine the scribes and the Pharisees? They're probably shaking their, their fingers at that prodigal son. That's right. Those sinners and tax collectors that Jesus is receiving, they're horrible. They're sinners. They're wicked. They're hopeless. But Jesus has more to say about the prodigal son. Before we move on to the, to the next point, I'd like to just draw a couple applications from this descent of the prodigal. The first is that Satan presents the bait and hides the hook. If you've ever read Thomas Brooks' Precious Remedies Against Satan Devices, you'll, you'll recognize that, that phrase. Satan presents the bait and hides the hook. The prodigal was so enamored with the idea of pleasure and sin that the world could afford and a total abandoning of morality. He was drawn to this. This looked good in his eyes. And doesn't it look good to, some, to us as well sometimes? We're drawn to it, but it's a trap. Satan will tempt people with pleasure, and to their eye, it's happiness. It's excitement. But the result is shame and confusion. Thomas Brooks writes, he presents the bait and hides the hook. The world presents profit and pleasure, and by the glistering of her pomp and preferment have slain millions. Adversity hath slain her thousand, but prosperity her ten thousand. So brothers and sisters, as Christians, I ask you, do you desire the far country in your minds? Is this something that you want, that you desire? Remember that Satan presents the bait and hides the hook. This is what happened to the prodigal. He went looking for excitement and he found shame. And so how may you avoid this device of Satan? You need to know what sin is, the true nature of it, and by this you need to know God's law, what is right and what is wrong, and you need to keep sin at a distance. If you play with sin, and you entertain it in your minds, you will fall. And it is well to remember that sin itself is deceitful. Uh, what seems happy and pleasurable for a time, it maybe truly feels that way, it will usher in great darkness. As John wrote, do not love the world or the things of the world. So Satan presents the bait and hides the hook. We see this in our parable as the prodigal pursues pleasure and finds shame. The second thing is that those who are unregenerate are dead and lost in their sins. If you look later in the parable, the father gives us a pretty clear picture of the prodigal state in the far country. If you look at verse 24, he says, For this my son was dead. And he also says, He was lost. And we have seen this description of sin, the prodigal's descent into the far country. We see him in the state of spiritual death. He is driven by his desires. He's controlled by what he's going after. He has no control over himself. And then he's in bondage to others. He has to work for the man in the fields. His life is a cruel existence. And we read in the scriptures, this is the state of the unbeliever. This is the state of those who are unregenerate. Paul gives a very graphic definition of this in Ephesians 2. Let me read this and imagine in your minds the prodigal son there in the far country as I read this from Ephesians 2. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, 
the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so I ask you today, brothers or sisters or children or family members here that are outside of Christ, does this describe you? Are you like the prodigal in the far country? Maybe your life doesn't look outwardly as bad as his does, but are you currently living in the far country and dead in your sins? Well, this parable has wonderful relief for your condition. Well, we've studied the descent of the, of the prodigal. We saw that without delay, he pursued the pleasures of the world. Without hope, though, he found himself poor and unsatisfied and hungry. And we saw that Satan often traps people by presenting pleasure, but hiding the cruel nature of sin. Let's move on to the second main point, the deliverance of the prodigal. The deliverance of the prodigal. This is in verses 17 to 24. If you look at verse 17, it says that the prodigal came to himself. Um, that phrase is also used in Acts 12, 11, when uh, Peter was freed from prison and an angel leads him out of the prison. And remember, he thought he was seeing a vision, but then it says he came to himself. Okay, it's the same phrase. The prodigal son awakes. He comes to himself like almost waking up out of a dream. That's the, the, the turnaround. This is how, how shockingly quick this is, out of almost a trance. And he sees things for how they really are, and he sees his own condition. This is the beginning of his repentance. And we have uh, this like inner dialogue of himself. He's rehearsing, what am I going to say if I go back to my father? He says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. And it's interesting. He understands that his sin is not just against his father, but also against heaven. His sin is against God. The word heaven is used to refer to God sometimes in scripture. He also understands that he's not worthy to be called the son of his father. And he tries to think of a way that he can pay back all that he has done. Um, for all the wasted resources, the third of his father's possessions that he had wasted. And he thinks, maybe I'll be a servant to pay back my father. Well, the reaction of the father is very well known, <laughs> and rightly so. He sees his son while he's still a long way off. This means he was looking for him. He saw him. He felt compassion. He ran and embraced and kissed him. His reaction is almost like if you had someone you knew you thought had died, had showed up on your doorstep and you ran to them. That, that's almost like this, this father running to his son. And in verse 21, the prodigal tries to uh, give his rehearsed apology. But if you notice, he doesn't get to finish. He doesn't say everything that he rehearsed. He says that I have sinned. I'm not worthy to be called your son. But notice he doesn't get to say Maybe I can pay back everything I've done by working as a servant. His father interrupts him almost. He, he commands his servants to clothe his son with the best robe and a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. He orders for the fatted calf to be killed and prepared. And in that time, that would have been a very special occasion to kill the fatted calf, something prepared for a feast for a long time. He commands that a great party, a great celebration be thrown in honor of his son. Now can you see the perspective of the Pharisees? What? How could this sinner 
be accepted in such a great way. He didn't deserve it. And we see that the father in verse 24 says, For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Well, let's apply this this section of this parable. The first thing I want to bring out is that the Holy Spirit uses affliction and conviction to lead sinners to repentance. The Holy Spirit uses affliction and conviction to lead sinners to repentance. Uh, There in the far country, the prodigal had hit rock bottom, and this led him to come to himself. It was almost as out of a dream. He saw things for how they really are. He, he saw the greatness of his sin that was not just against his father, but also against God. He saw that he was unworthy. He saw, I don't deserve my father's favor. And doesn't this describe some of our testimonies, <laughs> brothers and sisters, how we were in the world and in sin and almost, we were almost like wake, woken out of a dream, out of a trance to see things for how they really were. And, and some of us were awakened to our lost condition. The Holy Spirit sometimes uses affliction to wake us up, to see things for how they really are. And we can see that this is a pattern of our God, to use affliction and conviction to draw poor sinners to himself. Through the sovereign power of the Holy Spirit, we see that God draws poor and wretched sinners to himself. And this is not, it's not because the amount of their guilt for what they have done, uh, the apostle John says that the spirit gives life. Um, this, he doesn't earn his way by being convicted of his sin. And we see that one of the ways that God rescues sinners is to leave them to themselves until they descend to such an utter end of despondency that they see their true need. And this also is not just of Christians, or not just of unbelievers, but also God does this to Christians sometimes, doesn't he? He lets us go. He leaves us to ourselves in order to bring him back to, our, to himself. And so maybe some of us know prodigal sons and daughters. Maybe some of us have children who are in the world, who have left. And so let us pray that God would use their sin and use their affliction to leaving them to themselves to truly show them their need of sin, to awaken their hearts to the gospel. And it's good to remind ourselves that no matter how far gone a sinner is, they are never too far for God to bring them back, for God to show grace to them. The gospel is truly amazing. The second thing, the second thing by way of application in the second point is that the Lord Jesus kindly welcomes sinners freely pardoning them. The Lord Jesus kindly welcomes sinners, freely pardoning them. We see this in this parable, a beautiful picture of the gospel. We see a beautiful picture of the love of God towards broken and wicked sinners. The father in the parable, it says, because of the great love he had for his son, forgave him even before he returned home. He was ready at a moment's notice to forgive him to jump up to him, to to run to him, to embrace him, and to welcome him into his family. And this is a beautiful picture of how the gospel works, of what Jesus Christ has done, that he kindly welcomes sinners. Now, if if you noticed, the father gives the prodigal some gifts. Now, what's that all about? People throughout the history of the church have really tried to understand what each one is. Um, you notice that there's a, he puts a cloak on him, he gives him a ring, uh, shoes for his feet, and a fatted calf. 
And some people try to understand the spiritual meaning of each item. Like they say the cloak is Christ's righteousness or the ring is God's grace. The shoes are enable him to walk in the light and the fatted calf is even the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, whether or not these interpretations are exactly what our Lord intended in this parable, we see something here. We see that all of these gifts were given to the prodigal after he is received by the father and they're honorable and they're choice gifts. Do you see it? The prodigal, filthy and muddy and dirty, coming back to his father, and he's given a beautiful robe. He's given a ring for his feet. He's given shoes to wear, and a great feast is given to him in his honor. And it's the same with us, who are Christians, that through the merits of Christ, when we're received by God and declared righteous, we are adopted into the family of God. We inherit the name of God. We have access to the throne of grace, and Paul says we are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We see here as the prodigal is brought back home with true repentance and is accepted into the father's family again, we see that he is blessed in a great way. And in a greater way, we are blessed in Christ when we are brought into the family of God. And so for those of us who are in Christ, let us consider the kindness and the love of our Savior who freely pardons sinners like you and me. And he has given us everything, all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. We were far off, but God has drawn us near. He has run to us. He's embraced us. He's given us the best robe. He's given us a ring on our finger and shoes for our feet and a fatted calf for us. We have been greatly provided for in the Lord Jesus Christ. The third thing by way of application here is there is great joy over the conversion of a lost sinner. There is great joy over the conversion of a lost sinner. If we look back to the other two parables, this is a common theme. There's a celebration. There's great joy when what was lost was found. Remember in, in the sheep, um, the 99 uh, sheep, uh, he finds the one and there's a great celebration. And, and Jesus says, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who needed no repentance. And in the parable of the lost coin, he says, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And in the parable here of the, of the lost sons, we see a great celebration at the rescue of a sinner. I want you to, to contemplate something. Consider the joy in heaven when someone is saved. Consider the joy in heaven when someone repents and is drawn near by the gospel. The angels celebrate. Have you ever considered that? The angels celebrate when a lost sinner is saved. That's a wonderful thought, that the angels in the presence of God will sing and they will rejoice that a sinner has been brought into the kingdom. This is not some vague speculation. This is what our Lord tells us, that the angels in heaven rejoice over the repentance of a sinner. When the Lord saved you, there was a great celebration in heaven. Even the angels rejoiced in your rescue. I always think of Acts 2. Remember how many people were saved in Acts 2 at Pentecost? 3,000 souls. Imagine the great joy in heaven on that day when 3,000 souls were added to the kingdom. But all of this leads up to something eschatological. At the end of days, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, we read John's description of a great multitude that no one can count 
And it says that they all speak out and rejoice. And it's like the roar of many waters or the sound of thunder. And they say, hallelujah for the Lord, our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. And so we see that there's great joy over the conversion of a lost sinner. Well, in the second point, well, the first and second points we've seen the prodigal's descent and we've seen the prodigal's um, deliverance. Now, that's a great sermon. We could end it right there, right? And sadly, many people end it right there. But we've missed the main point of this parable. And so let us turn to the third main point, and this is self-righteousness exposed. Self-righteousness exposed. Because this is not, there's not just one son who is lost and found. There's another lost son, and he never left home. And so we see in verse 25, the older brother was in the field. He hears the noise of the party, and he's told that his younger brother has returned and was received, and the celebration was for his younger brother. What's his reaction? He's angry, and he refused to join the party. And this, this is a direct pointing at those Pharisees. Remember back in verse 1 and 2 that they grumbled that the Lord Jesus was welcoming and receiving sinners? This is the exact same language. They're angry at the reception of lost sinners. And Jesus confronts the Pharisees here. Their anger at Jesus forgiving sinners, it showed that they didn't understand grace and they thought themselves as righteous. The older brother, he viewed the father's grace in a very distorted way. He was angry at the thought of a great sinner being given much um, forgiven much sin. And what it did is it, this exposed the older brother's heart. It exposed it. And it showed that he was a self-righteous person. He did not see his father's kindness as good, but as foolish. And that's the heart of the self-righteous person. When someone else is forgiven much, their reaction is to say, they didn't deserve that. And anger is the next reaction that comes. And we can see this kind of, this is a pretty nasty um, description of this older son. Um, he thinks to himself, wait a minute, I deserve that feast. That feast should be for me. Where was his reward for doing the right thing? Uh, he says in verse 29, I have served or slaved for years. Well, now we see more discontentment from all these years coming to the surface, um, revealing and exposing his sin. And then he says something quite uh, insane. He says, I have never disobeyed your command. You see how he viewed himself. He said, well, he thought of himself as good in his own eyes. He needed no repentance. And this is exactly how the Pharisees thought of themselves. They viewed themselves, as Luke tells us in chapter 18 later, they trusted in themselves because they were righteous and treated others with contempt. This is the spirit of the Pharisees. And Jesus uses this parable to expose self-righteousness. If you look at verse 30, the older son, uh, notice how he speaks about his brother. He, he calls him this son of yours. <laughs> he doesn't even call him my brother. He says, this son of yours. He's trying to distance himself from this younger son. And then he adds the phrase, who has devoured your property with prostitutes. He's being overly specific, bringing up things that were already known in order to further distance himself from his son and make him look more the villain. He's a wicked sinner, but I'm a righteous son. 
But the father pleads with his son. He says, son, you are always with me. All that I have is yours. But the son, the older son, he doesn't listen to his father. He doesn't realize the truth in his words. And he closes his heart and he stops his ears. As far as he sees, he has nothing. He has nothing. And we can see here again the spirit of the Pharisees. They were angry at the kindness and love of God. They thought that God should only show grace to those who deserved it. But that's not grace, is it, brothers and sisters? <laughs> grace is, is unconditional. It's not conditional upon performance. That's not grace. Grace is unmerited favor, not merited favor. And the parable closes with the father pleading again with his son. He says in verse 32, It is fitting, or I think it should be, it is necessary, to celebrate and to be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. When the prodigal son is delivered from his great sin, this demanded celebration. But the older brother still couldn't see this. He was blinded by his pride. So let's apply this last point, self-righteousness exposed. And I have a, a few things of application to close this out. The first thing is this. Self-righteousness cannot understand grace. Self-righteousness cannot understand grace. To the self-righteous mind, to the Pharisee, grace doesn't make sense. The prodigal son had committed a great sin. Why was he being received with open arms? He didn't deserve that. It's not fair. <laughs> How stupid of my father to be conned by my younger brother. What about me? <laughs> Notice that all of those thoughts are self-centered, self-absorbed. And self-righteousness distorts the grace of God into something that must be earned and it magnifies the self above all other things. But there's a kind of logic, a kind of bitter logic to the older son's perspective, isn't there? The, the younger son had sinned greatly. Their wicked deeds are public knowledge. Everyone knows what they've done. Why aren't they being punished? Why is Jesus welcoming and receiving sinners? <laughs> but that's the whole point of grace, is it not? Grace, as I said earlier, is the unmerited favor of God to sinners. It is only by his grace that anyone is saved. No one deserves God's grace, but the self-righteous person cannot comprehend this. They can't understand it. And there's a great danger in misunderstanding grace. Let me read to you a passage from Mormon scripture. This is literally from the, from scripture, from the Mormon scripture. It is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. It is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. Do you hear that? That's not grace. That's earned merit. And this contradicts scripture and, this, and the very essence of the gospel. What does Paul say? It is by grace that you are saved and not of works. And the religion of the older brother and the religion of the Pharisees and maybe some who sit in good churches is that of works salvation, of self-righteousness. Secondly, Self-righteous people are blind to their great need. They are blind to their great need. Um, the older brother in our parable reminds me of another parable that Jesus spoke. Do you remember the Pharisee and the tax collector who go to the temple to pray? The tax collector acknowledged his great need. What does he say? Uh, he, well, 
He couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, for one. He beats his breast and he cries out to God to be merciful to him, a sinner. But what does the Pharisee do? He was thankful that he wasn't like other men. (laughs) He, great and obvious sinners. And he listed in his mind all the good things he had done. And the the Pharisee and the older brother, very similar figures in Jesus' parables. They were completely oblivious to their own need. We all like to shake our heads at the Pharisees and say, I'm glad we're not like them. (laughs) But those are the words of the Pharisees, are they not? (laughs) Um, we We as Christians living in the church may have more in common with the Pharisees than we would like to think. When we start comparing ourselves to others, to scorn them on the basis of performance or holiness or religious duties, we inherit the spirit of the Pharisees. We assume that we deserve grace because of what we have done, and they don't deserve grace because of what they haven't done or the things they have done wrongly. And I ask you, do you assume that anything you do as a Christian is the basis for God accepting you? Do you assume that anything you do as a Christian is the basis for which God accepts you? That's the spirit of self-righteousness. You need to be aware of your own need. The fact that nothing you do or did contributes to your justification. Instead, you must beat your breast and cry, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, for, anyone who, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And it's only once you have become aware of your great need that there's only one thing for you to do, and that's to run to the welcoming arms of the Lord Jesus. You must say that you are a great sinner but he is a great savior. The third and last application about self-righteousness is that self-righteousness is often exposed by great displays of grace. Self-righteousness is often exposed by great displays of grace. We see this in our parable. The older brother's distorted view of grace, it was lying hidden and dormant for a long time. And it was only exposed when something gracious happened, very gracious happened, in his presence. His heart was revealed only when something really got to him. It really bothered him. This was personal, and it uncovered all the nastiness within his heart. It just came out. It just spewed out. And the older brother is extremely unattractive in his character and his words. He's selfish. He's unforgiving. He's proud. He can't show grace to others. And we may look at him and say, but I ask you, is this us? (laughs) In our stubborn, sinful hearts, even as Christians, we can foster this spirit, myself included. And this is quite convicting. What is our response when God shows a large amount of grace to someone we think doesn't deserve that grace? What's our response? Are we uncomfortable? Do we shy away? Do we grumble? Are we angry even? Do we refuse to go into the party when God forgives a sinner of his sin? And we just can't understand that. Brothers and sisters, don't wait. Don't wait for a great display of grace to expose the self-righteousness in your heart. Search your hearts and root this out. One writer asked a very, I think, a very searching question. He said, are our churches more full of younger or older brothers? Are our churches more full of younger or older brothers? Or can I ask it in a different way? Do our churches attract the same kind of people that were attracted to Jesus? Or do we attract older brothers, Pharisees, outwardly pious, 
and theologically orthodox people who don't perhaps understand their great need and the beauty of God's grace, we must beware the dangerous malady of self-righteousness. Remember that Jesus welcomed sinners and that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. If we really feel that we are saved all because of grace, we will not speak or act like the older brother in this parable. And so to conclude, this parable ends unresolved. We don't know what happens. It ends with the father pleading with the older brother. And he offers him grace. So why would Jesus leave the end of this parable unresolved? Well, I think he's beckoning us to ask, and the Pharisees who heard him, how would I respond? Are you like the older brother who refused to go into the party to celebrate his rescued brother? And back in verse 2 of the, of the chapter, that's what the Pharisees did. Their complaint was that Jesus welcomed sinners. That's a wonderful complaint, isn't it? <laughs> that's, a, that's a wonderful news, the fact that Jesus welcomes sinners. Not something to complain about, but to rejoice at. But what Jesus has exposed is, although God welcomes those who are obviously sinners, religious people may be further away from the kingdom of God. Dale Ralph Davis says, the far country may be in the church pew. The older brother never left home. He never lived an outwardly licentious life, yet he was further away than the younger brother from the kingdom of God. And just as the father pleaded with the elder brother, I, I tell you, there is hope for Pharisees. <laughs> if this is you, there's still hope for you. After hearing this parable, we might say that this man, Jesus, even welcomes Pharisees. And Jesus beckons Pharisees to forsake their hearts, their sinful and stubborn hearts, to realize their great need and come into the party. And so the point of this, these parables in Luke 15 and this, this one parable here is that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And I'll, I'll finish by reading a, a very well-known hymn. Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous, not the righteous. Sinners, Jesus came to call. You pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this parable that our Lord spoke 2,000 years ago. And we, we thank you for this description of sin, this hurrying after the far country. And Lord, I pray for those here who perhaps are Christians yet desire the far country. Lord, Show them the shame and the wickedness of the far country, even though it is alluring to them. Show them the true nature of sin, that they may not go there. I, especially for some of the young people here, Lord. I pray that you would, by your grace, withhold them from these things. And Lord, we also thank you for this beautiful picture of the gospel in this parable, that the father welcomed the son, the younger son, into his arms and gave him all things. And Lord, we thank you that you have given us all things in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that we are saved by grace and not by our works, but saved by the perfect work of Jesus Christ. And that is the basis for our salvation. And Lord, we also thank you for this parable ending in the way it does, speaking of self-righteousness. And Lord, I pray that we, we are all self-righteous in some ways with remaining sin. And I pray that you would root this out of us, that we would take this seriously, that we would mortify our self-righteousness that we would truly understand the grace of God and that we would be dependent upon his sufficient mercy. 
Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.